What's going on world? Just letting you know that Technically Speaking is on Clubhouse. So if you have access to the application, go ahead and search for Technically Speaking and join the nearly 5,000 members globally every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. We talk about a whole range of different topics supplemental to a lot of the themes on the show. We've got folks that are early in their careers, late in their careers, across different industries, all sharing their experiences, expertise, and tips on stage. It's something that you don't want to miss. I personally look forward to having you in the club and seeing you on stage. That's Technically Speaking on Clubhouse. You thought I was only dropping one after hours segment on you? No, I've got two. And on this one, it's one of my favorite guests on the show. It's Teresa Slate. She's a design lead at Northern Trust in Chicago. So this segment of after hours is an extension of episode 12 around enterprising innovation. And in that discussion, we center around building out of legacy systems, enterprise experiences and the challenges associated with that in this sit down our discussion naturally touches on three areas the first being around design ethics and what that means especially in 2021 what does accountability look like and finally Teresa reframes the phrase getting a seat at the table to blowing up the table so you don't want to miss what she means by that there's, there is no neutrality when it comes to American values. Yeah. And letting people incite violence, racism, hate, or hurting the working class and the poor class, like, no, that's not okay. You can't just say like, well, freedom of speech. No, you have to have some sort of value lens. And I think companies are gonna be super surprised because that's gonna become more and more important. This is no doubt gonna be a thought-provoking conversation. So as always, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, Feel free to mention Get Technical Pod on Twitter. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Let's talk ethics and design. I know you've done a few presentations on this. Like I've definitely seen a few articles on Medium that, you know, kind of refer to this. So how would you define that and, and maybe kind of for our listeners, kind of frame how they can start to approach their work, uh, really kind of thinking about this topic? Yeah. So I think about design ethics. um, I feel like there are a lot of different terms for a lot of people. And the biggest thing I think of is knowing the ramifications of what you're creating from the beginning and not just from a like technical perspective, but a life perspective. So like in the talk, I talk often about like the ring doorbell, right? Because when I Mm -hmm. gave the talk once that had recently come up that they were giving their footage to the police, And it's like, okay, so if we like break apart policing in our country, who typically gets policed? Who's typically buying ring doorbells? If it's going to be wealthy white people giving it to the police because they're recorded because they moved into like what they quote a bad neighborhood with black and brown people. Like that's just reinforcing the cycle Mm. of like who gets um, like who's going to get arrested and who gets to work with the police. There's that. There's just like. I think it's anything. It's like asking yourself the question when you're working on a product, like we can make this, but should we make this? And like, what are the societal structures? Because the truth is nothing is built in a vacuum. Like 
just thinking through some of the stuff going through with like, I mean, LinkedIn and Instagram with like pushing down black creators who have talked about how the platform has like definitely damaged the revenue where it's like, oh, if I post a selfie of me, me, I get like a ton of things. But if I post a Black Lives Matter thing, all of a sudden my engagement goes down because it's getting mm. buried. Yeah. And so it's just like thinking through the thing that you're working on and being like, like, what are the ramifications? And there's been a lot of contention with this, I especially think when it comes to like social media and like Facebook, because yeah. I know there's like a, a definitely a new wave of designers at Facebook. A lot of them, I feel like are young black and brown people. And then it's like all the original people who were like white <laughs> made their money off of it. And now they're like, Ooh, I can't believe you would work for Facebook. It's so evil. <laughs> and there's just like such an interesting discussion there. Yeah. Because it's like, well, yeah, you can say that now because you made all your money making this evil product. So it's like, you made the evil thing and now you're warning us about it. Yeah. Like, shouldn't that have been there from the beginning? And now you're shaming people who have finally gotten like their big break because working for one of the big 10 tech companies is going to propel you forward, especially as a black or brown designer. Yeah. And now you're going to shame them for working there. Mm. And it's kind of too, like, this message is just for the black community. So nobody else say this to them. But it's also like, we should want to be better. Like I shouldn't rest on my laurels and be okay that I'm working at Facebook because like some like other white designer did it and it was fine. I'm like, yeah. I want to, I want to be better than the people who built some of these evil things. Mm. And so like, it's harder for me to get more excited about working for places like that, that aren't thinking about like, well, what are the ramifications of the things that I'm creating? Like social media now has a whole host of like mental illnesses that have now been like, you know, exacerbated or created. Yeah. And there's just not enough work in thinking about how to like think about the damage that's been done. And I think yeah. so many people are like, oh yeah, I maybe work on this evil product, but I like volunteer in my free time. You can't offset harm. Like if you harm someone, that's it. You have to make amends for the harm that you made. You can't be like, hey, I know I punched you last week, but I walked this old lady across the street yesterday. So like, it was totally, you know, fine. Totally think, unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, and that's, I feel like how people are starting to look and approach tech is like, yeah. sure. I might work for this company on this product. That's something like bad, but I, you know, volunteer for like black girls code on the weekend or like something along those lines. And it's like, that doesn't, that you're still putting harm out into the world. Like it's yeah. not, carbon emissions you can't just offset it by doing something nice like i don't know watch the good place you know you're getting so many mm. so many uh <laughs> have you seen that show no i, I haven't oh my I god haven't. it's about the afterlife and there's a point system oh and that decides who like ascent like goes to the good place or the bad place and yeah. so i always think about that too because you can't ever erase your bad marks you yeah do so much good that it like outweighs it so i always think about it, it's like that <laughs> love the sort of metaphor or analogy around carbon emissions like offset yeah. right like these are two totally different sort of things right and while personally you're trying to make these moves to sort of offset that or make you feel better it yeah. still doesn't erase the larger thing which by the way is consistent at all levels of institutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's the thing is like your, your CEO isn't going to change until you pressure them. Like, I think right. that's the biggest thing that I've been thinking about as I get, you know, more and more radical is like, it's the workers who have the power, not the people who are currently in power. Mm. So if you can all work as a collective and say, like, I think about, I think this has been on my mind a lot recently. So the shooting that happened in Kenosha, mm. uh, that, that kid, yeah. 
They crowdfunded $2 million bailout. It's crazy. He was invited there on a Facebook event that was getting armed militias together to protect the businesses of Kenosha. And in one line in an article, Mark Zuckerberg was like, oh yeah, I guess it should have been taken down since it was inciting violence. And it's like, you literally are responsible for the deaths of two people Mm. because you made a public, you made an event and like, you're trying to be whatever nonpartisan. If people are saying citizens rise up, get armed and go to protect property. Yeah. Like, how is that not inciting bias? How is Facebook not being held responsible mm. for that? And like that, that's where I think like, yeah, if you made that, if you were the moderator and you didn't let it get taken down and this happened, like yeah. that's a ramification that you need to live with. Yeah. What, what does, so, so there's, there's a few things here, right? So there's, there's sort of the ethics and the approach to building these products, right? right. And then there would probably be, there should be, in my my opinion, accountability. So what does accountability look like for these yeah. types of things? I think that gets harder. So I also yeah. talk, I talk about VW Gate a lot. So the mm. software developer, James Leong, who got, I don't ever know, he was pretty much threatened with almost 40 months in prison and a $200,000 fine for putting in software in VW cars to trick California emissions tests. And so mm. his accountability was like jail time. And yeah. I think accountability just looks like... It's hard because it has to go up the chain. I think it goes up to like, how do we divest from companies that do bad things? And then how do we have accountability after the fact? Like if you created a feature that led to somebody dying, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, we can't like censure you in design or something, but I'm like, it needs to, I don't know what, what it yeah. looks like because we're in such a weird culture now that like accountability is now equated to like cancel culture. And it's like, well, don't I get to make amends? And it's like, yeah, but you have to make that amend. Right. And you also have to take ownership. And I think design has been so far removed Yeah. and not, not, I will say feels like it's so far removed that they don't take personal responsibility for the things that they, they create. Mm. Like I have a friend here who's talking about those people who work at like Uber and Lyft that are like, how is you as a designer, like doing pro prop 22, knowing it hurts drivers? Like how is you as a designer, like made that little pop-up ad and like pr- proudly presented that. And yeah. I think that's the thing to me, ethics is all about two personal values. Mm. And like 2020 and beyond, like before has shown us there are bad values. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, there's, there is no neutrality when it comes to American values yeah. and letting people incite violence, racism, hate, or hurting the working class and the poor class like no that's not okay you can't just say like well freedom of speech no you have to have some sort of value lens and i think companies are going to be super surprised because that's going to become more and more important yeah so like i think about this at northern is because they're very invested in the community i think they definitely probably have clients that i wouldn't be comfortable with especially when it comes to like cities universities or police forces but by the by they're very invested in chicago and they take very good care of their employees and they're very much like working to be more and more representative of the city that they were founded in. And even taking a chance on like wealth, isn't just like new England, like East coast white wealth anymore. Like lots of different people are establishing wealth. So how are our programs and our relationship managers reflecting that? Like they, somebody talked about how they, what was it? The guy who was like head of GFO talked about how they went to an office on the West coast and it was all a bunch of white guys in suits they showed up and they didn't get the job because they're like, you guys seem too old school. And so even from like, even if you have terrible values from a business perspective, like it's just going to become more and more pertinent to be on the right side of history. 
And like, I think that's so much when I think about like Facebook and Twitter and like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, they're on the wrong side of history and they're going to continue to be. Hmm. And like, we also have to hold them accountable because also the media continues to coddle them. Of like, oh, well, he didn't know he was a child. And it's like Zuckerberg is fucking in his mid-30s. He is not a child. (laughs) He is not a child. Tamir Rice was a child. Mark Zuckerberg is not a child. And so Mm. just like the more we break apart those narratives and hold them accountable, that's what like, I don't know. That's what we have to do and figure out how we divest and how we like, like Amazon. Oh, God. How do you become a trillionaire during COVID? That's crazy. And it's just like taking little steps. Like we, like my wife and I now, like we canceled our Prime account and we try not to order from Amazon, but because it's gotten so big, sometimes it's hard where it's the only place you can find things. But it literally is now our last resort where it used to be our first resort. Hmm. And so I think now it's like just trying to have those small movements because people only listen to their pocketbooks. And so that's where we got to like sort of start hitting them. Like if designers got together and we're like, okay, as a collective of, industry professionals we're not going to work on these products yeah and let I, me tell you how fast they would change yeah <laughs> like, and, and you know, and i and i think i've talked about this in in previous episodes or maybe some talks but you know it's 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 amazing to see the progression and responsibility of design right for a while there design was seen as a service mm-hmm. right and and you know we fought so hard to get a seat at the table and oh, what a responsibility it is to have a seat at the table. And now we don't want it. That's and the that- thing. <laughs> it's like a lot, like I wouldn't say all of us, because I'm like, yeah. that's, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. But exactly. We fought yeah. for a seat at the table. And now that we're at the table, we don't like what's there. Yeah. Like, and so we either change it or you're complicit in what's going on. And like, yeah. I don't know. It, it yeah. colors the way I see people talk about their work and the types of people I know that I would be interested in bringing on our team. Because yeah. I'm like, you, you can't hide working from some of those bigger corporations and you yep. know, it is, it is what it is. You got to eat yep. at the same time. If I press you on what it was like to work there and you don't bring up any of the ethical ramifications of that company mm. that, that didn't even enter your mindset. I'm like, okay, yeah. I don't want to work with you. Cause you're not actually thinking through the impact of things. Yeah. So, so for the listeners, what is like the first approach or a framework, if you will, when, when kind of thinking about this. Okay. So Oh man, I should have reviewed my slides. No, my first one is kind of looking (laughs) at the power play. Like who are you making this for and who benefits from it ultimately? And so I think about that where if it's like, okay, this massive foundation is creating something for teachers and like if this foundation is supposed to benefit like teachers, but they're being hired by the like school systems that employ them that have notoriously treated them poorly, maybe you don't want to work on that product. Like that's one. I think too, I was thinking of The Wire with like Lester, right? Follow the money. Mm-hmm. I think, think about the product that you're making and follow up where that money goes after and who is sort of funding the project. Um, those are like the big the big two things. It's just like who yeah. benefits from your product at the end of the day and whoever benefits it, who's ever benefiting from it, the person that's saying that they need this quote unquote innovation, are they actually part of the community or are they not? Yeah. Awesome. I love that. This is great. <laughs> um, so- on your LinkedIn profile, uh, your headline is Black Lesbian Radical Leader Focused on Getting More Black and Indigenous Women in Design. Let's blow up the table. Yeah. I don't want to sit at the table anymore. Who cares? Mm. Blow up the table. The table shouldn't even exist. Mm. And I think, again, this is just coming from, you know, I feel like the Black Lesbian Radicals who came before me. It's about collectivism. 
and sharing knowledge and not holding things so precious. Like I can acknowledge like, yes, I am talented. And also I got to where I am from a series of luck. Hmm. Like I was lucky enough to have parents who like had good enough credit to go into debt to get us into good schools, like to move to like that Dave Chappelle joke, right? My parents were rich enough to buy a house in the poorest white neighborhood to get us in good schools. So I'm like, that's, that's luck. You know, I don't have any control over that. And a lot of people don't. Okay. I was lucky enough that my public university, which was very affordable, had a great design school. And on top of that, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship there. So I didn't graduate with a ton of debt. And all of that sort of propelled me into having like sort of the right credentials to be considered a designer. But there are Mm. so many people, especially that I've been mentoring lately, who have sort of a non-traditional path who would just like blow me out of the water. And I'm like, so how do we get more of those people? Like, how Mm. do I do it from both sides, right? How do I get those people sort of this kind of secret knowledge that a lot of designers hide? Um, and I think about this too, like working. Like what, 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 what were people hiding? I mean, just like not hide, I guess that's the wrong term, but just being like an heirs of like, well, I have this thing. And if you want to learn it, like pay me and I'll teach you. Mm. And it's like, no, like, yeah. let's like, I bring this up to gravity tank because the founder, Chris Connolly was very much like design isn't magic. I don't want us to be in a black box. I want us to be completely transparent about what it is that we do, mm. because at the end of the day, the clients can do it themselves, but we're all trained practitioners. So again, it's like plumbing. Yeah, you can fix your own plumbing. It maybe will go well, maybe won't go well. But like, if you hire a professional, you know that the job is gonna get done and they'll also walk you through it because we shouldn't be so afraid that we're gonna like lose our jobs or like get rid of the magic. Because I don't know, at the end of the day, I think about that, nobody's me. Right. So you all bring a unique set of experiences. And if what's keeping somebody out is because they don't have an understanding of typography because they've never had a typography course, Hmm. let's, let's teach them. Right. We can teach all of that stuff. Like there are steadfast. And I think this is one of the great things about going to DAP is it's a very much a Bauhaus. Like you learn to be a designer. Nobody Hmm. is inherently born with the natural talent of being a designer. It is a sensitivity that you, that you learn by just repetition, repetition, repetition. And like, you can do that on your own, or you can do it in a high paced environment at a university, but that's all it's about. It's like training yourself as a skill. And so I think when people are hiding, I think it's more like, they don't want to show you how the sausage is made because they're insecure that once you know, you'll do it and not hire them. Mm. And that's not how I feel. I'm like, great. If you know how I do this stuff, now we can solve better problems because you're going to have a better understanding of what it is I'm trying to accomplish. And you can provide your insight, which helps me because nothing good happens without collaboration. So, 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 yeah, blowing. So blowing. So my take is like blowing up the table is kind of blowing the doors off of, Uh you know, these, the gatekeepers, right? There's, I'm assuming that for a while, the knowledge that was kept, it was in these groups of gatekeepers that kept it from people. And your gatekeepers more than likely were in positions of power Mm -hmm. in these institutions. Yeah, I think about like, that's why AIGA is going through a thing. Like it has been such a gatekeeper organization about Mm. what isn't designed. And I remember in the Chicago chapter, I helped pick um, our award slate one year. And it was actually the most diverse award slate that AIGA Chicago has ever seen. It was all like, black and brown women for the most part. And the woman who won our designer of the year, Catherine Darnstadt was actually an architect, but she was an architect that uses human centered design principles in her architecture. Mm. And 
the president that year got so many letters from the gatekeepers in Chicago, like the older white designers that were like, she's not even a graphic designer. How dare you give her an award? And it's like, here's the thing. In order to get the fellowship award, you have to have been in design for like, you know, 15 to 20 years and graphic design specifically, historically, who was only allowed access to that? Mm. straight white people like right. so there's no way that we can diversify if we go with these arbitrary limitations and i mm. think that's what's kind of blowing people's minds like yeah. i remember talking to this woman she's very proud of herself she was like oh i just do blind resume reviews and i'm like i hire managers if they've been a manager before and it's really worked out and i'm like okay but let's let's unpack that if you hire somebody who's been a manager before and we statistically know that women are not promoted as fast but typically do all the work of a manager but don't have the title doesn't that skew the figures, right? Because the person that's going to have the title of manager is going to be somebody who is in that position of power already. So if you're already starting off under, how are you expecting somebody to sort of like catch up based on title alone when they've been kept out of that access for so long? And I think for design, like it's such a middle-class career, which is wild to me because mm. I think about it from the perspective, like my mom had no idea what I was going to school for. She's an engineer. She studied yeah. chemical engineering. And I remember her coming to my freshman studio and being like, she has a class called color. I thought that's what you did in kindergarten. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, she's like, are you going to have a job after this? I was like, yes, it is a lot more analytical than you think. I promise. And she's like, okay, like, okay. <laughs> like, and I think that's the thing is just like teaching, like blowing up the doors, getting out the gatekeepers and realizing that, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I can curse, but I'm like, it's all bullshit. Like, yeah. Nobody, they, they're more practiced than you. That doesn't mean they know more than you. And often, like, if we look at, especially design in America, it's so white and European centric that I'm sorry, most of the gatekeepers don't know what good design is in other cultural contexts. Mm. And I think that is the big thing that's been missing from design education is that good design differs based on context and based on culture. Right. And that really like came to me. I went to Shanghai had their first UX conference in 2016 and I went to it which is a crazy thing to do. I did, I took like a weekend trip to China. I was like, I don't know what I was thinking. A weekend was trip. That's, that, that's a long flight. I think, was that a 14 hour flight? 15 hour flight? Uh, well, six, 16. Cause I did like, Oh, you're coming long, from Chicago. Chicago. So the long haul is like 14 to Hong Kong. And then I would do mm. two hours, like Hong Kong to gotcha. Shanghai. So I like left on a Thursday, got there on a Friday where we went to the conference like four hours later. And then I flew back on Monday. <laughs> um, and yeah, this, there's this guy who, who's like a white American, but he grew up in uh, Shanghai because he's like a military brat. Yeah. And he gave a talk about how, about global design. And he's like, global design currently is Western design, but that's going to change because there are more people in the East. And this is really the first time in recent history where China hasn't been the center of the world and center of trade. So people talk about losing their superpower. It's like, no, it's just going back to stasis mm. where China is the superpower. And so he talked about how Western design ideals don't play in China because of cultural context. So like minimalism doesn't work. Because if you look at a Chinese home, to the average Westerner, it would seem cluttered, but to a Chinese person, it's perfect because they can see everything they need out in front of them. So that mindset of how homes are designed ties into how the applications are designed. So mm. if you're not showing me all the options, I don't think it's there. So when like, like I love using WeChat and stuff like that. And I think Facebook Messenger has like, you know, sort of stolen some of that and modified it. But like to the average user, WeChat seems cluttered. And I'm like, no, I'm not. It's amazing. I can open this. I'm like, let me order food. Let me get a taxi. Let me send some money. Like, let me do a video chat because it's like all right there. Yeah. And that's what plays in that culture. So I know that there were a lot of 
Western design firms like the IDOs and Frogs coming to Shanghai and struggling because the design there is different. Minimalism isn't what that culture has traditionally been about. And so you can't just walk into a cultural institution. And I think that plays a lot in design in America. And like I've talked about, I had to relearn what was beautiful because I grew up Mm. being inspired by like African art and African design. And then to get to school and to be like, no, that's ugly. Ooh, why do you have so many colors? Like it needs to be red, white, and black. What are you doing? You need to be using Mm. Helvetica. Like that is kind of a bit soul crushing. So then I just like spent my design career learning how to assimilate to this very narrow scope of design that kind of really drove a lot of my career, I would say probably until like six years ago. Yeah. So what does the future look like for you? We talked about this before, before the show. Yes. The future. So funny. So I actually am hoping to exit design at some point in the future and move on to just sort of other passions I have. So one of them is I'm actually thinking about running for office. Oh, wow. Um, I'm getting more and more involved with like local activism and things like that. Um, I've been doing actually screenwriting. I'm actually in the process of trying to sell a pilot going on wow. here now. <laughs> so I'm just doing more and more of those things. And I think for me, the future of design is just doing more and more mentorship. Like yeah. there's one thing, I think I posted about it on LinkedIn, which is trying to start like a fee-free design school for people with non-traditional paths. I think I tentatively titled it the midnight school, Mm. but it's like working with a bunch of people to get companies to sponsor designers to go through like mentorship and education without having to have any sort of design background or like traditional design background. So it's like, you can come, you can be part of the midnight school, you go, you know, on and off like six months and just through mentorship and repetitions and doing projects. And then at the end of the end of the day, you'll have like an internship where you can learn. Just like I'm trying to subvert the university system because it's so narrow what schools have solid design programs. And also university is just exorbitantly expensive. Like yeah. I had a friend that just finished up grad school at like RISD and she's like, I paid all this money to go there to get like the seal of approval and I still don't have it. So like now I'm like, what, $80,000 in debt <laughs> Yeah. for what? And so I think it's just like trying to move design from being that middle-class career and those barriers by saying like, and I truly believe everyone is a designer. So mm-hmm. let's get more and more people and make it, you know, make more people solve an interesting problems and like going into schools where design isn't necessarily traditionally thought, like I especially think at like the elementary, junior high and high school level yeah. and being like, hey, you're into math and you also like making pottery, become an industrial designer. Right. Have you heard of that before? You haven't? Let me tell you about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, and that's the thing is I'm like, I became a digital designer because I think at the core of myself, I'm a scientist. Like my favorite yeah. subjects in school were science and English, which was like a weird thing at my school. Cause they're like, well, if you like English, you'll like history. And if you like science, you should like math. I'm like, no, no history. Forget you math. Like I love science and I love English. And those are the two places I accelerated. And I feel like interaction design is where those two things come together because yeah. it's all about communicating, but doing it in like a very systemic way. Yeah. And but so, I, I think yeah. if people, people, I think also for aspiring designers, I think it's important to understand that design is multidisciplinary, mm-hmm. right? It's not like, you know, I think to your example, um, if you like English, then you should like history. That is so limiting. There are hundreds of thousands of options and niches that, you know, there are hard problems to solve for, yeah. right? And, and I think to our conversation earlier, 
Um, even thinking about banking, like there's still a ton of just innovation that's, you know, that's happening where you have the opportunity to really kind of make that change and, and be a big part of that. So, yeah. um, it's like, find your niche. And I'm yeah. like, I'm like, that's where I am right now. I'm, I yeah. have my own job security because my niche is like, if you want somebody who can be both detail oriented and a strategic thinker and focus on complex data problems, yeah. and you want that person to be black, like that's just me in Chicago. Right. That's just me. Like, right. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's like, and that's why I love my team at Northern because it's all a bunch of like freaks, like weirdos. That's what we are. And not like the, I don't even know the traditional creative weirdo, but I remember telling them when I got brought on as a contractor, the last project I worked on before joining Northern was at a utility company. And it was so fascinating. Mm. Like electricity is a modern miracle. If you take one thing away from this podcast, it's like, thank, thank that lineman because the fact that your lights don't go out every second of every day is amazing. But I was just like telling them, and I was like, oh, that's kind of boring. But, and I was telling them and they were, their eyes were all like, yes, this is awesome. And I'm like, oh my God, I have found my people. <laughs> just yeah. like <laughs> those really complex problems that aren't necessarily like pretty or sexy or fun, but they're really great to sort of sink your teeth into. Yeah. So. Enjoy this episode. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform that you use. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at harrisonwheeler.com for the latest industry insights, new article posts, and announcements of future guests on the show. Once again, thanks for listening to this episode of Technically Speaking. I'm your host, Harrison Wheeler, and I'm out.